Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's April the 1st, 2022. Um, no more jokes about April Fool's jokes. There's very little f- less funny than the First World War. Uh, the mass killing fields of Europe, um, both in Eastern and Western Europe, were catastrophic for the entire century for many different reasons. And the intervention of America in the war, I don't know if it's the intervention or the arrival of America in the war, of course, remains an incredibly complicated and controversial story in America. We had uh, a few months ago, the historian Neil Lanktot on the show explaining why and how America got involved um, on the world stage, became involved in the First World War, wasn't a world power, of course, in 1914 or 1916 or 17. Um, and Lanktot wrote an interesting book, The Approaching Storm, Roosevelt, Williams, Adams and their clash over America's future. There were three characters in Lanktot's book. Um, Theodore Roosevelt, who everybody knows, a remarkable president, perhaps the greatest president in American history, certainly the most interesting and complicated. Woodrow Wilson, uh, a less great man, but also enormously significant, the president who brought America into the war, and the peace activist, Jane Addams. Uh, Maybe true that there were three characters, but it's also possible that there was a fourth character, a central character that most people will have never heard of. That's the subject of today's conversation with the Boston Globe journalist Mark Arsenal, who has a new book out, The Imposters' War, The Press Propaganda, and The Newsman Who Battled for the Minds of America. The Newsman in The Imposters' War is someone certainly I'd never heard of, most of you won't, either, John R. Raffin. And he is the central character in uh, Arsenal's book, The Imposters' War, which is about, once again, America's entry into the First World War. Um, Mark is joining us. Uh, Mark, I assume you're in Boston, are you? Just outside of Boston. That's right, Andrew. Uh, I hope hope you're going to tell the truth, Mark, because uh, the main character in your book is an incredibly slippery character. His, His slipperiness is one of his more compelling qualities, I guess. What's so remarkable about Ratham? Why, why, why should we include him, perhaps, with Adams and Woodrow Wilson and Teddy Roosevelt in terms of making sense of why America entered the First World War? Well, I think what Ratham's contribution was is that early on in the, in, when the war was raging in Europe and America was not in yet, Ratham saw America's reluctance to get into the war as as much an enemy to be confronted as uh, the German Empire. So he made it as a mission, especially after the sinking of the Lusitania in 1915, to try to wear down the American resistance to war. And the way he did that was he made common cause with British spies, with uh, domestic spies, with uh, the Bureau of Investigation, which we now call the FBI. And he mined these groups relentlessly for sensational stories about German propaganda in this country, uh, German espionage in this country, 
even German sabotage in this country. And uh, he didn't write about British efforts to uh, affect the uh, minds of America. He was part of those. Uh, he wrote particularly just about the German efforts to affect the minds of America, the German propaganda efforts to try to keep America neutral, to try to um, uh, persuade America to support an arms embargo uh, into the warring countries in Europe, which would have hurt Great Britain a lot more than it would have hurt Germany. And uh, I, I, I think all of that, but yeah. yeah, everyone has strong, everyone back in the early part of the 20th century, 1914, 15, had strong opinions about whether or not America should get on, should get into the war. Here we have your, your Twitter page where you talk about the new book, uh, how a spy hunting journalist enthralled and deceived America. Um, Twitter didn't exist, but there were bars, there were kitchen tables. Why was this guy such a big deal? That's what I don't understand. What, how, I mean, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't the editor of the New York Times. No, and that's what part of the reasons why I made him such a fascinating story for me. He was the editor of the Providence Journal. Now, again, in 1915, Providence was a much more influential uh, city than it is now. Right now, it's about the uh, 150th biggest city in the country. Back then, it was about 20th, which was pretty much what Boston or Washington, D.C. is now. So he had a bigger platform than we would imagine. But he had uh, arranged... Um, uh, uh, deals with other newspapers whereby his scoops, his anti-German scoops about German intrigue, uh, about plans that Germany had to scuttle their, one of their own uh, luxury liners in the Hudson and trap American warships uh, upstream, things like that. He, he would uh, arrange to have his stories published simultaneously in the New York Times. And many of his stories were published in the New York Times on the same day they ran in the Providence Journal. And the the lead of that story in the Times would say, the Providence Journal will say today, he had built that kind of a following uh, nationwide that when you saw something from the Providence Journal, you knew or you suspected as a reader that you were going to get some real, real uh, insight. Uh, yeah. He was the Andrew Sullivan of his age. He, he may not have been a blogger. He may not have had a podcast, but he used the Providence Journal in the way in which very powerful bloggers or podcasters uh, use them today. If uh, I'm, I'm not sure how much he had to do with uh, a pacifist like Jane Adams, but would the pacifist community, the people opposed to war in America, did they see this guy as a mad warmonger? Uh, yeah, yes, they did. Um, you know, Ratham was, he certainly had uh, tremendous enemies. And again, remember the, the, the pacifists, some of the some of the pacifists in America at that time were actually being secretly organized by German agents. That was sort of similar, similarly to what the Russians tried to do to us in 2016 election, what they're trying to do in uh, controlling the news and propaganda around their invasion of Ukraine. The Germans tried to do that same thing with us in 1915 and organized sincere American pacifists into groups that would uh, oppose the war, oppose the Wilson administration, try to press the Wilson administration to prevent arms going to Great Britain. And, uh, you know, Ratham obviously despised these people. He thought Germany was well, What a... do you mean, obviously? I mean, the, 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 the Mark, there, there's a huge difference between Putin's invasion of Ukraine 
and the First World War, which was incredibly complicated and in moral terms in particular. And historians will never agree about who were the good guys, who were the bad guys. So there's Agreed. a massive difference. You can't, you can't compare Russian propaganda in terms of, I don't know, the Trump election or Ukraine to any of the foreign powers um, wanting the Americans to either fight or not fight in the First World War, can you? I think you can certainly compare and uh, uh, the the techniques because they use the, the same techniques, techniques. Yes, but not yes. in terms of the good guys and the bad guys. They were all they all had their agendas. Uh, That's right. The Western powers wanted the Allies wanted the Americans to come into the war, and the That's Germans right. didn't. Right. Yeah, and the Germans wanted to go further than that. Uh, they wanted to press America to just stop selling uh, arms. Uh, and war supplies to Great Britain. Uh, so, I mean, the, the Germans had were, were pressing the administration on those points as well. And they had every reason to do so. I mean, it wasn't because they were evil Germans. It was because they were fighting a war. Certainly not. I mean, they certainly didn't think of themselves as uh, propagandists even or saboteurs. They thought of themselves as patriots, right? That's true. So in terms of the eventual American entry into the war, do you really think that had... Uh, Ratham being run over by a taxi in 1914 or 15, that the history of America might have been quite different, that they wouldn't have got involved in the war? I think it might have been different. It's, I mean, we can't, we can't go back and replay that, but I don't think there was another individual who did more to try to condition the American psyche to accept war. Now, again, uh, as very well know most americans certainly in 1914 didn't want anything to do with it they figured that was a european conflict there's no reason to risk my son on uh, a european conflict that europe has these things from time to time and it'll blow over by um by 1917 when the united states got into the war it had been a couple of uh years of uh constant propaganda um from ratham and certainly others uh, that were slowly grinding down that resistance to war. I mean, Robert Lansing, who was Secretary of State uh, for much of the Wilson administration, said it that after, even after the sinking of the Lusitania, it might not have been possible for the president to take the United States to war. The and the Coast, reality of the uh, is the Americans didn't play a particularly important role in the they in the First World War. They certainly played an important role in the Second War. What about? The strains of isolations, and we did uh, a couple of years ago a very interesting show with Charles uh, Kupchan, um, the foreign policy expert, the author of Isolationism, A History of America's Efforts to Shield Itself from the War. He has an interesting chapter on the First World War. Who were the leading isolationists in intellectual terms? Was there an equivalent of Ratham, another journalist running another newspaper, running quote-unquote, propaganda against American entry into the war? I think the the closest, um, uh, I guess the biggest, the, the, the nearest parallel in terms of a mirror image of Ratham, although the, the publication was not the same, would have been uh, George Sylvester Weyrich, who was the uh, German-born American poet and intellectual who was running a, a magazine based out of New York called The Fatherland which he started at the beginning of the war, which he said would would uh, 
present the German opinion, the German side of the war, the German side of all these particular issues, the German side of the submarine blockade of Great Britain. And, you know, Weirich pressed his magazine um, uh, into service to try to counter things like Ratham. In fact, the two men hated each other. Weirich came after Ratham a number of times with hit pieces to trying to topple him and was unable to really do it. But I think Weirich might have been, he might have been the sort of intellectual mirror image of John Ratham, a very brilliant guy, brilliant writer. I mean, you can still read his interviews today and marvel at how deep and just wonderful uh, he was a, a wordsmith, even with a language that he didn't yeah. grow up with. Yeah. You, Mark, uh, your day job is uh, as a reporter for the Boston Globe. That's right. Providence is not far from Boston, although, of course, it's very different from Boston. I'm curious, given the number of Irish immigrants to Boston and I assume Providence, I'm guessing that there were many readers of the the Providence Journal who weren't particularly sympathetic to Ratham and his attempt to stoke anti-German feeling and and, and, and encourage American entry into the war on on the British side. Well, that's right. I mean, there were even polls taken at the time where, in general, the East Coast was more uh, pro-Great Britain. But again, when you moved into the Midwest, there are a lot of German-Americans in the Midwest who, I mean, Germany at the start of the war, there was 8 million German-Americans, either people, direct immigrants or the children of immigrants in the United States in a population just over 90 million. So that was a pretty sizable base. There was certainly four or five million Irish Americans at the time who, you know, after what, 800 years roughly of strife with Great Britain, didn't exactly want to get into on their yeah, side. You of the use war. that word. Uh, yeah, there are many other words <laughs> we could talk to use rather than strife. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, there were the Jews. We're going to talk about, quote unquote, the Jewish issue later when we, after the break, when we talk about the complexity of Ratham as an individual. Right. But, were many of the Jewish immigrants from Germany or Russia, what was their general position on the war? I, I'm guessing a degree of complicated ambivalence, especially on the left. Well, I think you've now we've gotten to a to a level of stratification that's beyond my expertise. But certainly German Americans didn't want war with their homeland. Uh, it took it and it took again, took two solid years uh, of um, propaganda and effort and work to get America to see Germany as an enemy. Of course, German, Germany didn't help themselves, right? Um, uh, submarine policy on the Atlantic around Great Britain was causing you know, one disaster after another and inflaming the situation. Um, but it is, I think it certainly is possible that had you know, Germany... Um, uh, not change its submarine policy and and try to attack America with a, more of a charm offensive, um, then they they could have cha- they could have delayed America's entry into the war, maybe to the point where it wouldn't have mattered. Fascinating stuff. We're talking with Mark Arsenal, the author of The Imposters' War. Very interesting new book about a newsman I'd never heard of him, John R. Ratham, the editor of the Providence Journal, who played an incredibly important role as a propagandist. Uh, and writer in in pushing Amer- America into the war. Uh, we're going to take a short break now, and then uh, after the break, I want to talk about Ratham himself because, in many ways, um, his own role in 
the world of propaganda is reflected in his person that was marked by all sorts of curious lies and deceit. So, Mark, after the break, take a short break, I want to talk about uh, Ratham the person as opposed to the propagandist. We'll be back in 60 seconds with Mark Arsenal, the author of The Imposter's War. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenon. We are back with Mark Arsenault, the author of The Imposter's War, really interesting new book out about the life of John R. Ratham, a, a curious character. Um, the book is called The Imposter's War, and Ratham is the ultimate imposter. He was a man defined by lies. He was a, a riddle of a man, wasn't he, Mark? Yeah, he was. I mean, it, John R. Ratham was not his name. Um, he had a fake name. He had a fake in, fake identity. He had uh, his entire biography as uh, either lies or exaggerations. Um, he, uh, John R. Ratham popped into existence in uh, 1889 in British uh, Columbia um, as an Australian immigrant of about 20 years old. And um, you know, he, the, he never, as far as we know, he never spoke his real name on this continent. What was his real name then? His real name was John Pulver Solomon. And I chased him across half a planet to, to um, gather the evidence to confirm that. And uh, when he, when he, 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 he uh, was born in Adelaide, Australia to uh, the former mayor of the town who was also the head of the first head of the um, Adelaide Hebrew congregation. He was a from a devout Jewish family that uh, had originally emigrated from England, actually not really emigrated, but he had a couple relatives sent 
from England to Australia when Australia was a penal colony. And he had a couple of relatives sent ahead uh, to serve seven year sentences for uh, larceny. They stayed, uh, built a very successful life as businessmen for themselves and then sent for other members of the family, which included uh, Ratham's father who came from England uh, to Australia, ended up in Adelaide, became a very well-known politician, was mayor, uh, was in the, um, in the parliament and uh, uh, died in, uh, 1880, uh, when Ratham was a young boy in, when Ratham was about 19 or 20, he sailed to Hong Kong. I'm uh, not quite sure what he did there, but then after about 10 months, he sailed to Western Canada became somebody completely new. Became why John did he, in your view, why did he reinvent himself? Why was he the ultimate imposter? In, uh, at this time, remember, as he's coming to age, um, it is a time of growing anti-Jewish sentiment uh, in the United States. Um, the United States is where the brightest lights were, where the biggest stages were. It's where he wanted to be. And I think he made a business decision knowing that the brightest spotlights would not be available to a young Jewish journalist at that time. So he he took the name John Revelstoke Ratham, which and the persona of a Gentile, which he maintained the rest of his life. His funeral in 1923 was in uh, the Episcopal Church in downtown Providence with you know, the risen Christ appearing in stained glass. Um, as far as we know, uh, he never shared that secret with anyone. How controversial is this now? I mean, does it, do people accept your argument when I... I did a little bit of snooping around on Wikipedia, which is always my resource for these sorts of things. Um, there is still controversy about his life. His personal life was misrepresented as well. His, his marriages, his affairs. I mean, everything about this guy seems to be a lie. Right. And it took me three years to unravel it, Andrew, but I did. I cracked the guy. I cracked him. And uh, his... What do you find at the heart of it then? At the heart of it, I think, was a man who wanted to be great and who had created this swashbuckling personality for himself, which was largely false. And in, uh, in, in advocating for his adopted country to confront what he truly sincerely believed was a world threat in the German Empire in World War I, he saw that as a chance to actually attain for real the made-up greatness of his own false identity. That's what I found at the bottom of him. It's kind of ironic. I mean, it would have been particularly ironic, I guess, in the Second World War. But in the First World War, when the Jewish question was much less central, certainly in the German involvement in the war, it's ironic that a man who may have pushed America, tipped America into the war, was... Uh, a Jew pretending to be a Christian. It is amazing. I mean, we thought, you know, uh, I, I had a colleague who, because I, I used to work at the Providence Journal, which is how I first discovered Ratham. I worked there from 1998 to 2008. And uh, the, we thought that the first uh, Jewish editor of the journal uh, was uh, Alan Rosenberg, who was a colleague of mine who got the job after I left. But uh, that was not the case. What about the... The Jewish question, did he, when he reinvented himself, when he became this imposter, did he 
ever write about the Jewish question, the Bolshevik revolution, the anti-Semitism in Eastern Europe? Not, not particularly. The only clue that I ever found in his own writing um, was on the day after the war ended. So, you know, so it's been November 12, 1918. So the type would have been set on November 11th, the Armistice Day. He published on his editorial page the, the uh, Psalm 100 um, from the King James Version. When I first saw that, not knowing his background yet, it struck me as like a very Christian thing to do. But um, later on, I came to realize that Psalm 100 is, uh, is an ancient Jewish prayer of thanks and is something that devout Jews say almost every day is sort of a warm up to morning prayers. And so I've kind of leave the kind of leaves me with this image was, is it possible that Ratham, as people had done, Jews have done throughout history when trying to escape oppression? Did he did he wear another persona on the outside, but remain a devout Jew on the inside? And if we ever were to catch him alone at his study in Providence, might we ever have found him hunched over a tattered prayer book, mumbling those verses? Yeah, it's funny. Uh, earlier this week, we did a show about Leonard Cohen um, and a trip he made to Israel during the uh, Yom Kippur War, where Cohen became, if you like, more Jewish. I mean, he never denied his Jewishness. He was from a very religious Canadian family, but sort of embraced his Judaism and, and prayer on this trip in 1973. So it's the kind of reverse of Ratham. What happened after the First World War, um, Mark? How, when did when did Ratham die? He died in 1923, kind of a broken guy. I mean... Uh, Why? He got what he wanted. The, the yeah, Americans entered the war. He did. He got what he wanted. And then in, um, in, in 1917, when America was finally committed to the war, he went too far. And he went on a national... Again, he was a he was a national celebrity. He went on a speaking tour of major cities, New York, Philadelphia, Detroit, Chicago, Boston, where he gave amazing speeches that held people breathless about how the Providence Journal, under his leadership, had gotten all these stories by using its own newspaper reporters as counter spy agents. These were outrageous claims. They were not true, uh, but he he shot himself into an even higher stratosphere of American civic life until the Department of Justice, which knew the truth about these things, decided to take Ratham down. Um, they convened a grand jury and threatened to force him to testify and to get out of testifying. He signed a, what the Russians would call a compromat, uh, attesting to the fact that the things he was saying out on the lecture tour were not true. And uh, the Department of Justice held on to that document for two years uh, as as a way to keep him quiet until Ratham started piping up again. Um, he got into a very nasty scrap with a rising Democratic politician by the name of Franklin Delano Roosevelt um, when Roosevelt was vice presidential, uh, a vice presidential candidate on the Democratic ticket in 1920. And um, when Ratham wouldn't back down, the department released that document and ruined him destroyed his reputation, which is why you don't see him 
playing a very big role in history because the writers of history saw that he had told all these lies, um, assumed that that also applied to all his journalism, which it did not. And they passed on Ratham the ultimate sentence and they left him out of their accounts of history. And what about the families of the boys killed in the First World War? And the ambivalence many Americans had, especially in the interwar period of America's entry into the First World War, were these revelations, were they a reason why America remained very ambivalent about war itself? And indeed, of course, even in the Second World War, it took Pearl Harbor to bring America into the war. I think that may be saying a little too much. Certainly when when the revelations came out, uh, the condemnation across the country was uh, thunderous. Uh, he was, uh, his reputation was obliterated. He tried to fight back with as much bluster as he could, which was always a great weapon that he wielded with a lot of talent. But uh, the lies he told were beyond, uh, not something that he could escape from. Uh, and it ruined his reputation. He, you know, uh, to, put to put it mildly. What about the sick. owner of the Providence Journal? I mean, yeah, they um, they didn't fire him. They didn't fire him. Um, there were no prominent calls for his head. Well, uh, he was their the, lunch ticket. I mean, I assume that he made them a lot of money. He increased circulation substantially during his time there. That is true. And he was, again, also as much as a liar he was, he was personally a beloved figure among people who knew him. He, you know, certainly had his faults, but he was a beloved figure there. Finally, um, Mark, a couple of lessons from this, maybe a personal lesson um, mm. and a broader historical lesson. What did you learn from this book, from the Impostors War, the press propaganda and the newsmen who battled for the minds of America? What, what should it teach us both about 20th century American history and the role and responsibility of journalists. You, as I said earlier, you're a you're a Boston Globe reporter, one of the best, one of the one of the richest uh, in, in legacy journalistic legacy in in America. What should it teach us? I think what it taught me, and I guess the wider lesson is also my lesson, is that everyone is always trying to influence what we think. And I think as reporters, that happens to us all the time. We're a politician is trying to spin you or a business leader is trying to spin you. Um, and I think, I think that these things happen so often and we're, we're assaulted by people trying to affect the way we think in, in such a constant manner that sometimes I, I think we, we forget that or we don't. Maybe we're not as on guard as we always should be about people trying to affect how we think. That's one thing that I took from this book, from doing this work. And then the 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 that's the the journal that's the lesson for the journalist for the Boston Globe reporter. What about a historical lesson for Americans? I think for you know we're on the verge maybe of another war. Uh, we yeah. had uh, uh, Michael Ignatiev, uh, Canadian writer on the show at the weekend suggesting that Western leaders need to at least acknowledge the possibility of using nuclear war or nuclear weapons in, in confronting Putin. What, 
what what should this teach us as we we think and rethink the issue of war and America's role in the world? I think again, it's this. It, it, in a way, it's the same lesson, right? I mean, there are uh, there are are countries and uh, and security agencies and businesses that have a stake in all these things that are in a competition for our hearts and minds. But not everything, Mark, uh, excuse me for interrupting, not everything is propaganda. I mean, you, you've done a great job uncovering the truth of this man. This is not a propaganda book, your book. Uh, it's The Imposter's War. And, and journalists can be propagandists. They can be in the pay. They can be biased. But they're also ultimately the only people we can trust to tell the truth about a complicated world, aren't they? Absolutely. And that's that's the job. And I I mean, I think that, that, that it is the responsibility of the citizen to find out who are the people that we can trust and and uh, turn to those people. You're right. It's a really important and interesting book and theme. God knows what people thought about people, particularly the fans of uh, of 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 Rathen, people who had been reading him for years, trusting him, believing him and then finding that he was actually an imposter on many different levels. Uh, it's an important new book, uh, Mark Arsenal. Congratulations on The Imposter's War on April 1st, 2022. What else, Mark, should people be reading? Uh, well, I, I just finished a book called uh, The End of Everything, Astrologically Speaking, by an astrophysicist by the name of Katie Mack. And it's about various theories about how the universe is going to end. And I, I don't have the math background to fully understand or appreciate things like theoretical physics or string theory or that sort of thing. But Mac has a wonderful gift of writing for the layman. And it's a book really about how deeply weird the universe is. And I came out of it with uh, just entirely new respect and love for this tiny blue speck of ours. Uh, that's one of them. And another yeah, book- Yeah, that, that sounds interesting. I hope I hope they're not in the pay of some alien government. <laughs> I hope not. Another one uh, that's a fast, quick, crackling read. I'm not through with it yet. I've started it recently is Robert B. Parker's Bye Bye Baby. Now, Parker was a prolific writer from Boston. He died about 10 or 11 years ago. His characters have lived on through other writers. This book is written by a very good writer by the name of Ace Atkins. And I got to know Ace a little bit and did a little consulting with him when he was doing research into the politics on the book. So I can certainly recommend it because I know we got the politics right. And finally, Mark Arsenault, the author of The Imposter's War, a book about the dishonesty, the lies, the untruths associated with American entry into the First World War. Who runs the world in... 2022 on April 1st, 2022, Mark Arsenal. The people running my world right now are journalists working in Ukraine. Uh, I can't do I can't do anything in the morning until I see what they've written while I was asleep. I can't go more than three or four hours without checking in to see what the what the new reports are. So, um, you know, I mean, some of them, uh, Yarrow, um, Trovamov of the Wall Street Journal, Calissa Ward, CNN, the Kiev. Clarissa was on the show, actually, a few uh, a year ago. So, I mean, these are the people cutting through the propaganda, you know, Russia's uh, Baghdad Bob style disinformation. Uh, they are the eyes of the world during the most dangerous situation on Earth. And I'm, I thank God for them every day.